0: Time, but I do want to preach what God's laid in my heart. That's Genesis chapter 12, starting at verse 1. It says, the Lord said to Abram, who later has his name changed to Abraham. He says, Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. Could you imagine this week packing up your U-Haul truck, your Penske truck, your budget rental truck? I don't know. I, I, they're not, none of them are giving me money, so I'm not, I'm, I'm not it's exclusive. It's whatever, whatever truck you use. And uh, your neighbors, your family are like, hey, that's awesome. Where are you moving? And you're like, I don't know. Well, you literally just moved all your, your your house is empty. You guys are moving. You're moving, right? Yes. Where are you moving to? Not really sure yet. So what's the plan? Well, I just know God's going to make it clear. As we drive off, he's going to make it clear where he wants us to go. Your family, your friends, your neighbors would think you have lost your mind. And so Abram, he says, uh, I will make you, God says, I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your, you famous. You will be a blessing to others. I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the families on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram departed as the Lord had instructed. Lot went with him. He was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife, Sarai, and later Sarah, his nephew, Lot, and all his wealth, his livestock, and the people who he had taken in the household of Haran. And he headed for the land of Cain in the land of promise. When they arrived in Canaan, Abram, Abram traveled through the uh, the land as far as Shechem. There he set up camp beside the Oak of Morah. Obviously, it was pretty... The Oak of Morah, that's probably, probably quite the famous place for in writing to just refer to that. And people obviously know what you're talking about. At that time, the area was inhabited by the Canaanites. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I will give this land to your descendants. Somebody else is there, but he says, I'm going to give it to you. Abram... Uh, What did he do at that point? Built an altar and dedicated to the Lord who had appeared to him. After that, Abram traveled south and set up camp in the hill country with Bethel to the west and Ai to the east, and there he built another altar and dedicated to the Lord and worshiped him there. Today, I want to preach on this topic. Don't stop building altars. Don't stop. Building altars. Lord God, we are just. Every time we get together, we we just. It never ceases to amaze me how incredible, and powerful, and loving, and gracious, and merciful you are. You are absolutely amazing, God, and we just adore you, and we're so thankful to be in your presence, Lord. But God, before we leave this place today, we want to hear from you, your word. We want your word to speak to us, to challenge us, to 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 just do something in our lives today. But help our hearts and minds to be open so that we're receptive to what it is you want to do, and your name we pray. Amen. So this man named Abram, meaning exalted father, later has his name changed to Abraham, which means father of many. And a name was so important, and it still is. Check out when Abraham has his name changed in Genesis 17. It says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Serve me faithfully and live a blameless life, and I will make A covenant with you by which I will guarantee to give you countless descendants. At this, Abram fell on on his face on the ground. And God said, this is my covenant with you. I will make you the father of a multitude. What's more is I'm changing your name. Man, poor guy, it's bad enough. The guy's like 100 years old. He's having babies and getting his name changed. So who says, well, the longer you go in life, the less you like change? How would you like to be a hundred still having kids and getting your name changed? Not to mention the circumcision portion, but that's a whole nother thing. Instead, you'll be called Abraham for you will be the father of many nations. As a matter of fact, here it discusses covenant a couple times. Do you know that God actually discusses covenant just in the 17th chapter of Genesis. He discusses covenant 10 times in one chapter because he is a covenant God, and he still is a covenant God. A covenant comes from the Hebrew word meaning bond. It was a binding relationship rooted in the promises and obligations. God would often take the initiative to bind himself to human beings which is amazing. He binds himself to the people he created. The creator binds himself to the creature, the creation. And just like he did with Noah, Abraham, and many others throughout the Old Testament, God still invites his people into covenant relationship. And guess what? He still gives us a new name when we enter into that covenant. But instead of a simple change from Abram to Abraham, God now says, when you enter covenant with me, in the New Testament, in this day and age, I'm going to give you a name that is above every name. And so we read about that in Acts 4.12, neither is there salvation under for any other. In any other, it says, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. In Philippians two nine, it says, wherefore God has also highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of who? At the name of Jesus. Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in the earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That name Jesus means Jehovah, that Old Testament God, has become or is our salvation. And so baptism, in another part of the New Testament, it says, baptism doth also now save us. So when we say, would you like to be baptized today in the name of Jesus, that is not like, do you want to join the church, or do you want to have an outward uh, sign of an inward faith? It's so much more than that, that if we say, do you want to be baptized in the name of Jesus? I talk to you, and somebody will, will talk to you about covenant, about understanding, making a commitment, repenting of your sins, and then you can step into this warm, clean water, and have the name of Jesus called over you. He gives you a name, and he allows you to enter into covenant. And, and, and when you do that, guess what? In Galatians 3.27, Paul says, For as many of you has been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there's neither Jew or Greek or brown or free, male or female, but we're all one in Christ Jesus. In verse 29, it says, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. So back then it was one thing, but now the New Testament, he says, you want to be a part of that Old Testament plan, that Old Testament covenant? I still am a covenant God, but what covenant looks like for me here today is you can take on my name, enter into covenant, and be baptized, and and that's part of his plan for your salvation. And so he might say, well, I don't know. I, I was baptized a different ma- manner or method and method, and so that's no disrespect. That's not meaning being mean or talking down to any religion or or denomination. But but scripturally, every person who is baptized was not baptized in titles, of Father, Son, Holy Ghost. They were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That's the way that people were baptized. And it wasn't by putting water on their head. It was by putting them under the water. The, the Greek word bapto, the very root of the word, means to immerse, plunge, put down into processing liquid. So that's why when it says in Matthew 3.16, when Jesus was baptized, he straightway came up out of the water. John the Baptist, baptized in a place where Scripture says there was much water there. Why would you even point out that little detail? Because it took more than sprinkling. That's what scripture, that's what scripturally what we have. And so I want you to see something from our opening passage. Abraham became known as the father of the faithful by by doing what what he did when we're introduced to him in Genesis 12. He left his father's house in Haran and started on a faith journey to a place where God was calling him. And any time you're willing to step out from what you know and say, I'm ready to go on a journey of faith, you're going to come to things in your life that require faith. It sounds easy. It kind of sounds elementary. But it's really difficult sometimes when you're in the journey. And so here immediately, he leaves his father's house and he proves to be a worshiper. In 12.7, it says, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I'll give you this land to your descendants. And what's the first thing he does? Abraham builds an altar. And then it says he moves on from there, and he goes to the south. In verse 8, it says there he built another altar. And so we see that he's obviously, every step he makes, every place he goes, God is at the forefront in his mind. He's not an afterthought. God says, move, and he goes. God says, move, and he goes. But then as he goes, he says, it's time to stop. I know I got a journey, but I need to stop everything, build an altar, and worship God. Too often we, we move to a place to place, but we forget to, we forget to stop and build the altar. We forget to stop and offer the worship. And what's an altar? An altar, you know, you might think an altar is sacrifice in the Old Testament. Or this is an altar. Why? Because it's elevated higher than the rest of the ground. That so, so come to the altar. And there's something powerful about coming to a place that was specifically designed and built for a response to God. So do I think that you could stay in your pew today, when we're done, when we're finished praying, or finished uh, preaching, that you can sit in your pew and you can feel God? Absolutely. But there's something powerful about when you step out from that, like Abraham did, leaving the area that you know, that comfortable seat, and then you say, I'm going up to a place that was set aside for me to respond. But that being said, this is not the only place. You, You don't have to wait, well, hey, after you feel God today. hopefully we'll see you next Sunday, you can feel him again. No, of course you're going to do that, but you can feel him on Monday, and you can speak to him on Tuesday, and you can come into his presence on Wednesday. And so an altar is any structure upon which offerings such as sacrifices were made for religious purposes. It was usually a raised platform or surface, not just today, I'm talking about in the Old Testament, an actual altar where sacrifices were given. Do you know that there are over more than 400 references in the Bible to altars. Altars are important to God. Altars always have been important to God. The word altar is first used in Genesis 8.20 when Noah builds an altar to the Lord after he leaves the ark after a worldwide flood. However, the idea was present as early as Genesis 4, 3 and 4, when Cain and Abel brought their sacrifices to the Lord. They most likely presented those offerings on some type of an altar. An altar always represented a place of consecration. And I know many of you, if you've walked with God for any amount of time, that some of your most intimate moments with the Lord, some of your most powerful interactions with God took place at an altar. Matter of fact, if we went back to Wisconsin, the church that I grew up in, I could take you into the children's church area, and I could go kneel down at the exact spot. Brother Parkey, our district superintendent, just talked to our quizzers about this yesterday. He has a picture, and he showed it, of the exact moment where God called him, and it wasn't at just at the front. It was at the side of a pew, and he kneeled down in an aisle, and he said, that was my altar of consecration. For me, I could take in Wisconsin. It was left of center. It was just about right here that I could say this is the exact spot where I was crying. And all of a sudden, I felt my mom and dad. I heard their voice behind me as I was speaking in tongues for the very first time as a seven-year-old at the end of children's church. There were altars. There were altars of consecration. And many of you, you have your own story. Moments where you knelt down, raised hands, said something to God. God spoke to you, and, and there was an altar that was built where consecration took place. And so an altar usually represented a person's desire to consecrate fully to the Lord. We read altars in, in the lives of Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, David, Gideon. They all built altars. And, and it's a making a it point to say, this is my altar and I want to be consecrated, God. I want to, I want to follow you, Lord. And Abraham, when he left Haran, it appears that God led him to Canaan, and God has Abraham look around. He says, look at all these people. I'm going to give this land to your descendants. And he falls on his face, and he begins to worship. But then the famine comes in the land of promise. We love the land of promise when the grapes are huge, and the fruit's amazing, and the land's flowing with milk and honey. But can you continue to walk in the promise when there's a famine? Well, there shouldn't be famines in the land of... The the land of promise should never have a famine. There should never be a a famine walking with God. But when you serve God and walk with God long enough, there are still famines. There are still seasons. Why? Because God says, I'll never leave you, forsake you. Take no thought for the morrow. He gives us promise after promise after promise. But sometimes, sometimes, your provision is not in the land, but it's in manna falling from heaven. It's in quail coming from heaven. It's in what God miraculously provides in the middle of a famine. And so, Abram, he says, well, look how Abraham responds. And now we're, in a, we're, in a, we're, not, we're not just coasting in promises anymore. Now it's a famine. In Genesis 12, 10, it says, At that time, a severe famine struck the land of Canaan, forcing Abraham to go down to Egypt, where he lived as a foreigner. As he was approaching the board of Egypt, Abraham said to his wife, hey, Sarah, you're a beautiful woman. He said, when the Egyptians see you, they're going to say, this this is his wife. They're going to kill me, take you, and so please, just just tell them you're my sister. Then they will spare my life and treat me well because of an interest in you. Everybody says, Abraham, what a liar. He's such a liar. But do you know Sarah actually was his half-sister? So... He wasn't really lying but he was not being 100% honest. Some, and you never tried to teach your children that concept. You're not lying but you're not being truthful. There's deceit there. And so he deceits and he deceives and you know when Abraham we just read about him I built an altar and I worship God I fell on my face I worship God famine hits the promised land and guess what we do not read from Abraham He does not build an altar. He does not seek God. We do not read anything about his decision being led by God to go to Egypt. We don't read about it. We don't read about altars. It's simply an account of a man who hit hard times, and he tried to figure some things out for himself. Anyone here ever hit hard times and try to figure things out for yourself? So instead of turning to God, he turns to deception. And guess what? He doesn't seem to learn a long-term lesson here because in chapter 20, he lies the same lie to King Abimelech of Gerar. So it wasn't, you know, he he just gets stuck in this deception. And, And guess what? God rebukes Abraham for this deception. God was not intending for Abraham to go to Egypt and lie because he didn't really trust God to provide and protect. And so from that point on, Do you know what we read about in the lives in the family of Abraham? Deception. I don't have time, but this right here is one terrible story after another in the family line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the deceiver, Laban, Uncle Laban deceives Jacob, Esau gets deceived. Joseph and his brothers, his brothers deceive their dad, and then Joseph deceives his brothers. Judah gets deceived by his daughter-in-law, and it went on and on and on and on, and deception just stays in the family line. So be careful when you're in the land of promise, but yet you're trying to figure things out by yourself because what you think won't really be a big deal is something that... Your kids start to see, and it becomes the way that they deal with famines. God's plan didn't seem to include Egypt in deception, but Abraham, he didn't didn't invite the Lord to have a say. He stopped building altars. Consecration happens at altars, but self grows. Hear me, self grows when we stay away from altars too long. Self grows when we stay away from altars too long. That's not that big of a deal. They always open the altar. I haven't gone in several months. Self grows when you stay away from altars too long. You see, we will go through trials and famines, but I'll say this. Don't stop building altars. Don't stop worshiping. Don't cease to invite God to be the one who directs your next step. Sometimes he wants you to sit tight in the middle of a famine and simply trust him. Simply say, God, I am not going to Egypt. I'm not looking to the world. What I'm going to do is I'm going to sit in the place that you promised me And I am going to say, until you provide, I will continue to have faith. I will stay at this altar. I know that manna might be coming in the morning. I know that that quail might be flying down. I know that you can provide water from the rock. I don't have to look anywhere else other than the place of promise. Sometimes we blame the devil or the enemy for our failures and decisions. The devil made me do all the enemy. Oh, man, I tripped up again. I got an intense spiritual warfare that the devil visited my door again. The devil can only be at one place at one time. Yes, there's fallen angels. There's demonic activity. But, boy, oh, boy, if you think the devil's on your front door, you are a spiritual heavyweight because in all the people of the world, the devil's on your doorstep. I would make the argument that many of our poor decisions and next steps are just flesh. Drawn away of my own lust and enticed. The devil, if if I can taste, that's why the Lord says, taste and see that I'm good. The devil, if he can get me to taste sin, he can move on because that's something that's going to resonate in my spirit, my heart, and my mind. And so he doesn't have to keep saying, hey, hey, Gary, now my flesh has tasted sin. Now I'm battling my flesh. But I would say that many of the issues we get ourselves in is because we stopped inviting God to lead us. We stopped building altars. We stopped focusing first on the promise and we let our attention turn toward the famine rather than the promise. So Abraham, he heads to Egypt. He deceives Pharaoh. There's deception again. And then God starts sending plagues on Pharaoh and the Egyptian people. And so Pharaoh figures out and, and that, that Abraham's lie. And now he, he says, I want you out of my country. This is before Moses. That's not those plagues. Different plagues, earlier. Genesis twelve twenty. Pharaoh ordered some of his men to escort them. And he sent Abram out of the country along with his wife and all his possessions. It appears Abraham left. If at least is blessed, if not more blessed. He left Egypt almost more blessed than when he went in. Why? Because Pharaoh just wants him out of there. This guy's causing problems. Get him out. And so he leaves with all this stuff, but this decision he made causes more problems in his life. Abraham and his nephew Lot, they have to separate in the next chapter because of the large amount of livestock and blessings. And guess what Abraham appears to take with him when he leaves Egypt? A handmaiden named Hagar. I go into Egypt. I don't read about no altars. I don't read about God directing. I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to use deception. No, no, no. Get out of here. You're causing problems in here. I'm going to send you with everything. And you know what? In in the meantime, I'm going to take this handmaiden named Hagar. The Same handmaiden creates a lot of issues down the road. Because again, Abraham and Sarah aren't trusting the promise. So what do they say? Oh man, we're getting old. You can't have kids, Sarah. I mean, we gotta gotta figure something out. You know what, Abraham? Here's the thing. Sleep with the handmaiden that we took out of Egypt. Okay. And to this day, in the Middle East, there's still battles about whose land is whose, Because both are saying, Abraham's my father. But that land was promised to Isaac in his lineage. But because Abraham and Sarah couldn't wait for the promise, they take this Egyptian handmaiden. Abraham sleeps with her and they have a son named Ishmael. And that starts because Hagar is the one that comes out of the land of Egypt and goes with Abraham. You see? What's the problem here? Well, it's Egypt. No, it's Hagar. No, it's Sarah. No. no, the problem is we have not now read for several chapters about any altars. It's just a man trying to make it through life, figure out his own circumstance, and just trying to do it himself, and there's no altars. You see, we always have to pay attention to our altars. The minute we start trying to consecrate ourselves at an altar. Something will always come along and try to take what we're laying on that altar. Hear me right now. Genesis 15, 9. Look what happens to Abraham later. It says, The Lord told him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. Abraham, at later at that, he presents all these to, to, to the Lord and kills them, and he cuts each animal down the middle and lays the halves side by side. He did not, however, cut the birds in half, and verse 11 says what? Some vultures swooped down to eat the carcasses, but Abram chased them away. You know how many times we've probably, if you've read the Bible, you've read this passage. But I doubt many of us ever stopped and caught that passage of Scripture. But it just jumped off the page a couple of weeks ago to me because, you know what that tells me? Every time that you go to lay something on the altar of sacrifice, the enemy is always going to swoop in and try to scoop that up. The enemy is always going to the vultures are always going to try and come and take what you're offering as a sacrifice. Well, what does that look like for me? What what are we talking about? We're not talking about animal sacrifice anymore. How often do vultures steal that thing? They distract us from consecration. But we're not it's not an animal. It's what some of the vultures of 2020 look like. Bitterness. That's a vulture. I'm just trying to offer my life as a sacrifice, God. I'm trying to to consecrate my life. I want to walk with you. I want to be set apart, sold out to you, Jesus. And here comes the vulture of bitterness. Here comes the vulture of anger. Here comes the vulture of adultery. Here comes the vulture of pornography. Here comes the vulture of greed. Here comes the vulture of distractions. Here comes the vulture of addictions and substance abuse. Here comes, here comes the vulture. The vulture is always going to swoop in and try to take the consecration of your life that you're laying on the altar as a living sacrifice. But notice what Abram does at that point. He chases him away. He says, you ain't taking my sacrifice. You ain't stopping me from this time of worship with the Lord. You're not going to stop me from being who God has called me to be. So I tell you, don't let it stop your sacrifice. Don't quit your worship. Don't stop building your altar. Chase him away and get back to God. Don't let the climate of your situation dictate your ability to worship. Because guess what? Altars without sacrifice, are just a pile of rocks. If you say, wow, altar, look at this, a beautiful altar. But if there was no, in the Old Testament, there's no sacrifice on the altar. That altar wasn't an altar. It was just a pile of rocks. What makes it worship unto the king is the fact, is the fact that we're willing to place a sacrifice on the altar. If, you're gonna, if we're going to walk with God, he's going to call for sacrifice. Anytime if you say, I want to walk with God, I don't care if you've been here your whole life, if it's your first time in this building, we're all in that same place where we're saying, I want a journey. I'm on a journey. I want to I serve God. I want to be what God wants me to be. Don't ever let the devil or anything tell you, oh, you don't belong here. You're not like them. No, 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 no. We are all in this. It doesn't matter if you're wearing jeans, a suit and tie. It doesn't matter what you you got on your head. It don't matter, okay? We are all saying, God, I want to walk with you. I want to be what you want me to be, Lord. Speak to me. Help me. Show me. But any time that we say, "God, I want to walk with you," there's going to be a sacrifice. Otherwise, it's just a pile of rocks. But you know what the thing is? When Abraham went up that mountain, and God says, "All right, hey, I'm, I promised you a son." They finally they they they, they try to create one themselves. They, they Ishmael. Okay, I'm going to go. I'm going to go with Hagar. And then he says, "No, no, no. You just wait. Uh, it's going to be it's going to be you and Sarah's seed." And so then she has Isaac. And then Isaac gets a little bit older, and he says, "Now go take that son that you've been waiting for for 25 years." And Go sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. Whoa. But Abraham goes, and he goes up that mountain, and, and it's interesting because you don't read about what. What does he say? He says, wait here. And me and the lad, my son, we're going to go up and worship. We're going to go up and worship. Man. Man. It's quite the time of worship. That's quite. Of course, when Abraham went up that mountain and thought he was going to sacrifice his son, God doesn't make him do that. But notice that when Abraham leaves, he does not say, I'm going to go sacrifice my son. He leaves and he says, Me and the lad, me and my boy, we're going to go worship. It will come again to you, but he sets that son on the altar. He totally, this was not odd in the first century, pagan religions they were doing child child sacrifice all all the time. So Abraham's like, man, oh man. So he thought this is what his God wanted. That's not what God wants, but God was testing him, and Abraham laid him on the altar. He pulled that knife out, and the angel said, "Stop! You ain't killing your son." But even at the time of sacrifice. Even at the time of sacrifice, at the time where God was asking for Abraham's probably, if not his most top three, maybe it was his wife, hopefully it was his wife, but his most precious commodity on this earth. At that time where you're, you don't want to talk about some things, I say this all the time, nothing should be off limits in our lives. If there was ever going to be something off limits, uh, n- no, not Isaac. I've been waiting 25 years. He's from you. No. No. Abraham says, "You want Isaac?" I doubt he was excited. Everything else we read, Abraham does. He goes. God speaks to him. He goes. He he says, "Leave the land." He goes. He says, "Do this." He goes. He goes. He goes. He, goes. he says, "Get circumcised." He takes all the male child, the men child of that house that same day. This is the first time we read Abraham, and says he will. He left the next morning. That one wasn't probably as easy. Not to mention the fact that he might have had to sneak out before sunrise, because I doubt Sarah would have been cool. Sarah, I'm taking Isaac up the mountain, kill him. God's calling for a sacrifice, so that was probably more like shh, quiet, No, 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 Mom's still sleeping. Because I doubt a lot of ladies would have been all right with that. And so he goes up that mountain. But in spite of all that, he says, me and the lad are going to worship. It was not begrudgingly, God loves a cheerful giver. It wasn't, he he said, we're going to go worship. I'm going to offer this to God. And here's the thing we got to get about sacrifices. As you lay things on the altar of sacrifice to God. If all you ever see is the sacrifice and not the worship, you're going to be bitter. That's why I have a lot of friends that have walked away from this beautiful truth that we know. Because man, oh man, the legalistic, the rules, they make you do this, wear that, listen to that. You can't do this, but you ain't do that, blah, blah. blah man, it sounds like you've done a lot of sacrifice and not a lot of worship. Because everything I do, God asks for it in his word, and I go up the mountain, and not everything I do is easy. But when I do it, I don't go, don't sacrifice. I don't even know why I serve this guy I'm calling for another sacrifice. And I gotta to go to this place and I gotta do another sacrifice. And now he doesn't want me to do that. And now I gotta live this way. And oh, this is ridiculous. No, no. I so say you call for that. Oh, it's in your word. Well, that might not be easy, but Father, this is worship. God, you want me to be here? I'll go there. You want me to give this up? Absolutely. If it's in the scripture, if it's the written word of God, I don't have to pray about it. Oh, I'm going to pray about it. I'll get back to you. Why do I need to pray? If it's in the Bible, I don't have to pray about it. It's in scripture. And so I lay it on the altar of sacrifice. But it's a whole lot more than just sacrifice. It's my worship. It's me saying, God, I offer this to you. Not begrudgingly, but because I worship you. And so, what do we see Abraham do? Abraham realizes this famine, and I'm almost done. This situation in Egypt, where he's staying, it's a mess. It got his mind off the promise and onto the problem, and he's deceiving people, and he and he's and he's he just doesn't seem. Then he takes Hagar, and it's just he's a mess. He's damaged his relationship with a local national leader. He's lied. He's put his family in a precarious position. Sarah could have been killed. So what does he do in Genesis 13:1? So Abram, he leaves Egypt, travels north into the Negev, along with his wife and Lot and all that they owned. Abraham was rich in livestock, silver and gold. From Negev, they, traveled, uh, they began, or continued traveling by stages toward Bethel, and they pitched their tents toward Bethel and Ai, where they camped before. And verse 4 it says this was the same place where Abram built the altar and he worshiped the Lord there again. What did Abraham do when his life got out of it started to spiral out of control and things became a mess? He was smart enough to hit the pause button, to leave the land of sin, and where is the first place he goes? I need to get back to the last place I built an altar. I got to get back to the last place where I had a personal encounter with God Almighty. Don't stop building altars. When your life gets off track, maybe it's there today, the best thing to do is go back to where you built your last altar. To go back to where you say, where was the last time that things were making sense to me? that, That even if things weren't making sense, that I had peace, that I was walking with the Creator, that I felt His presence, I heard His voice. Go back to your last interaction with God. Return to a place of worship. Remember the time and place of heavenly interaction and holy communication. So I say to you today, don't give up. Don't stop. Don't just settle in Egypt and say, life is over, everything's tough, I'm not going back to the place of famine. No, he said, you know what, that was the place God promised me. I got to get back to the promise. And the first thing I'm going to do along the way is I got to get back to the last time I built an altar. And so as you stand to your feet. In the broadest sense, an altar is merely a designated place. Where a person consecrates himself to something or someone. That's why you say, oh, you get married, you stand at the altar. Oh, I this ring, I thee wed. The rest of my life, richer for poor and sickness and in health. As long as we both shall live. All my worldly goods to thee I endow, which is always hilarious. Because when you're getting married, most people don't have anything to offer in that area. Churches usually have altars for prayer, communion, weddings, other sacred purposes. But every human heart has an invisible altar where the war between flesh and spirit rages. When we surrender areas of our lives to the control of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, we are in effect laying something on the altar before God. But in times of famine frustration and confusion... Times where vultures are swarming around your sacrifice. We can get distracted from the altars we're building. And we can let the vultures of adultery, pornography, anger, frustration, bitterness, gossip. Come and steal the sacrifice that we one time laid on the altar. And from the thing we're trying to lay on the altar and consecrate to God so... Today, maybe some of you you've never you've never actually the Bible says we're a living sacrifice. Maybe you've never laid your life on the altar. Maybe you've never actually said, "I want to be buried with Him in baptism." I want to have the name of Jesus. I want to enter into that covenant relationship. I want that today. We can talk about baptism today before you leave, in the name of Jesus. For others, you say, "Well, yeah, I've been having my sacrifice up there for a while, man." But you know what? The vultures are swarming, and it's trying to take your sacrifice. And you need to be like Abraham and say, "No, get out of here! Get out of here! Get out of here! You ain't gonna steal my sacrifice. This is a time of worship. Between my my life has already been consecrated. You ain't gonna swoop in and take my sacrifice. Get out of here. Listen." I'm getting ready to open an altar, meaning I'm getting ready to say, hey, this area that's been consecrated for this very moment, you can come and respond at an altar, at a place of commitment, a place of consecration. You know, our lives, they they change at altars. And hear me, I'm, I'm almost done. Just listen. Our lives change at altars. Our situations change at altars. Our futures change at altars. My future was altered as a 17 year old at an altar in Wisconsin, in La Crosse, Wisconsin, when I made a commitment to God and He called me. Your whole life can change at an altar. But guess what? Unfortunately, our lives change also when we forget altars. Our lives also change, our situations change when we forget altars. Our futures also change when we forget altars. So your life is going to change one way or another. Either it's going to change in an altar or it's going to change when you forget the altar. And So today, I want to open an altar to invite a, a house full of people. To step out of what Abraham did, a place of comfort, and to say, I'm going to step out of this place, and I'm going to approach an altar, and I'm going to place a sacrifice on it. I'm going to swat the vultures away, and I'm going to lay some things down and say, God, I want to live a consecrated life. God, I want to offer you something that maybe you've been calling me to offer you for a while.'" And I've been talking about the sacrifice and the difficulties and this and that. And I'm not doing that. But today, God, you know what? It's not about the sacrifice itself. It's about the spirit of worship as to why I am offering the sacrifice in the first place. And so today, as we sing this song, I invite you to come to an altar. Where the Father's hands are open wide to accept His people, willing to hear their voice, their prayer, really to re- receive their sacrifice, ready and willing to respond to His people this morning. Oh God, I offer you this sacrifice in worship, Lord, and I will not stop Lord, building altars. Oh, in Jesus' name. Oh, Lord.